how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. The answer always goes back to Jaws, said Jeremy Slater when asked about why he got into the business in the first place. A movie he saw too young, it changed the way he saw movies and he knew he wanted to grow up to play with quote, giant rubber sharks. Slater's version of rubber sharks came in the form of The Exorcist, The Umbrella Academy, Fantastic Four, and most recently Marvel's Moon Knight for Disney+. In the latest project, a six-episode series that stars Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke, Stephen Grant discovers he's been granted the powers of an Egyptian moon god, but he soon finds out that these newfound powers can be both a blessing and a curse to his troubled life. In this interview, Slater talks about smuggling exciting ideas into IP, writing words meant to be spoken and read, what it means to write hard PG-13, and how he created six versions of the series Moon Knight. For me, the answer always kind of goes back to Jaws. Uh, um, it was the the movie I saw far too young. Um, it's still my all time favorite movie. I'm sure you can see the all the stupid Jaws memorabilia in the background and the tattoos and everything else. But it was the uh, it was the I, I saw it very very young and it sort of scarred me and traumatized me. Um, I had a very negligent babysitter and I was young enough that I still thought any water source was a potential shark. So I was scared of the toilet. I was scared of the bathtub and my parents had to sit me down and explain kind of what movies were and that it was a big rubber shark and those were actors and there was a guy with a camera. Um, and as soon as they said that, I, I, I just kind of clicked in um, and I was like, yeah, that you've been trying to sell me on like being an astronaut or a policeman or something like that. And, and that all sounds terrible. Like, I just want to grow up and play with the big rubber sharks. Um, so, so I kind of knew from a very young age, but I had no idea how to get there. And so I started, you know, I wrote my first scripts when I was 14, 15. And then I spent probably another 12 or 13 years of, of just doing terrible soul crushing jobs on 
you know, factory lines and landscaping and mm. bartending and, and anything else to pay the bills and just sort of constantly writing and sending off rejection letters until, you know, it, it, it took probably a good 15 or 16 years before I got a yes, but uh, um, it's kind of the only thing I ever wanted to do. So it was, I didn't have a fallback plan. Did you look like, um, to dig in that a little bit, did you look back to Jaws over the years? I imagine your perspective changed some. Did you like read the screenplay? Did you see the characters differently or identify with it differently over time? Um, I mean, I, I think it is one of the few perfect movies out there. And, and I know a lot of that just comes down to dumb luck. It comes down to all the, the problems that happened on the shooting of that. Um, so much of it was sort of improvised and stitched together and unplanned. Um, but, but I do think it's a hugely inspiring movie to look at. And you, if you look at in terms of how economical it is in its storytelling, how many of the sort of rules of screenwriting, it, it sort of breaks. I mean, I mean, it's, it doesn't have three acts. It's a two act movie uh, and it works just fine. So it's one of those. So I, I think it's inspiring on a technical level just because it's a really great script, but it's also inspiring in, in sort of how many of the, the sort of immutable rules that you're not supposed to break, that it just sort of cavalierly breaks and gets away with. It's, it's, it, it's, it's a movie made with like the confidence of a young man who kind of doesn't give a shit about the existing rules of what you are and aren't supposed to do, which is why it's funny that it sort of gets blamed for like the birth of the blockbuster, where I'm like, that that Jaws has nothing to do with Independence Day or, or, mm. or something like that. Uh, right. it's, it's, it's such, I could rant and rave about Jaws <laughs> for the next hour easily. <laughs> gotcha. Well, tell me about, so you, you've worked on movies like uh, Fantastic Four, the show, The Exorcist, Umbrella Academy, now Moon Knight. What are some of your thoughts about the responsibility of coming in, working with IP and adaptations and those type of things? How do you think about that? Like, where do you start, generally speaking? Okay, I'm back. I'm sorry about that. Um, yep. I think uh, I think the reality of things is is that right now IP sort of rules this town, um, and and you know I, I've you know I'm I'm currently trying to get financing and trying to get a, a, a spec script I wrote last year uh, off the ground for me to direct um, that's not based on existing IP, and it's such an uphill challenge. It's incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's the downside, but, but the advantage is that there are so many new homes for content and, and there's such a race for content that I think it, it, it becomes very easy to take IP and use it to tell interesting, exciting stories that you already wanted to tell and to sort of graft those stories onto existing IP, especially when so much of the IP that's out there is stuff that's based on Saturday morning cartoons or based on you know, Lucky Charms or Hot Wheels or some things that don't necessarily have stories. Um, and a lot of times that can lead to a really sort of soulless product, but it can also give you things like the Lego movie or, right. or some of, you know, these, these movies that shouldn't work, but, it, you, but actual artists sort of find a way to smuggle stuff that's really smart and really insightful in under the guise of sort of selling more toy kits for a company. So it's always... I, it's not new that's kind of been happening um, for the last 15 years, but it's become much more prevalent in the last couple of years where if something's not based on existing material, um, you can see people's eyes sort of glaze over and people get very reticent to commit. Right. Not to get into your, your plot for your spec script, but did you set certain parameters on that with budget in mind, those type of things, anything different than your other stuff? 
Yeah, I, I tried to write it at a more reasonable cost. Uh, and, and then once it was done um, uh, and, and I talked over with my producer, I'm, I'm doing it with James Wan and Michael Clear from Atomic Monster. And, and you know, we looked at the budget and we said, you know what, this is still too high. Um, the reality is as a first time director, you need to get that budget down to a safe, comfortable number before anyone's willing to sort of roll the dice on you. Um, and for us, that number seems to be about 10 to $12 million. So it was kind of one of those things, you know, it is a monster movie with some creature work and some big special effects. So, so the, the, the challenge is always how much of the fun stuff can you shave away and, and not, not hurt the integrity of the piece, not take away the reason that you're making it in the first place. So I think we found some really smart compromises, but it's definitely, writing for a budget is very different than, you know, writing something for, for Marvel or for DC or some of these other places where the budgetary concerns um, are not the, the sort of first thing you discuss. Mm -hmm. Within kind of those limitations, does it help coming with being the writer director, like carrying the whole vision through, as opposed to just trying to sell the script and bring on a director? Do you see a benefit of wearing both those hats? I see a benefit for me and I see a benefit for the end project because, yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say mo most of the, the projects I've been a part of in my career, um, you know, I have had more unhappy collaborations than happy, I would say, more collaborations where the director and I were not necessarily on the same creative page. And, and a lot of that is just due to the way this town sort of works where look, if you want to get hired as a director, it's very hard. You either come in and say, this is a great script. I'm going to shoot it really well, which is not an exciting proposition for them. Or you come in and you say, this script has problems. I'm the idea guy. I'm going to fix it. And so, you know, a, a lot of the features, especially that I've been attached to over the last 10 years, they all have the same sort of development process where you work with a group of pr producers and studio executives for anywhere from three months to a year, getting something that you're all creatively really excited about. And then a director gets brought on board and the first thing they do is sort of blow it all up. It's like, oh, you, you've built these wonderful blueprints for uh, a cathedral, but my last project was a cathedral. I really want to build a bridge. So this is going to be a bridge now. And you're like, but it was designed to be a cathedral and all the stuff we like belongs on cathedrals. It's like, oh no, we'll figure that out as we go along. And that's how stuff winds up in development hell because the writer is forced to kind of bend it to the director's will and you wind up with this weird sort of hybrid. It's not really a bridge and it's not really a church. Um, so I've, I've encountered that many, many times. And, and some of you can see some of those things on my IMDb be real. And some of them are just projects that will never see the light of day mm -hmm. that just kind of stalled out in, in development hell. Um, so it, it's definitely helpful when you have one creative vision sort of driving the bus where you have one person saying this is what it needs to be and it's not an, an arm wrestling match between two people trying to sort of steer mm. this cumbersome thing um do you yeah. see more do you like is it true that writers have more freedom or more pull in television shows as opposed to movies you see do you find that to be true or not <clears throat> um it's definitely true to a point uh, i i i think I think anytime you are um, making something on a large scale, and, and I would include Marvel shows in that, Star Wars, DC, Game of Thrones, anything that is, you know, I, I think there's a very clear difference between, between a TV show that I ran or co-ran like The Exorcist, 
which had, you know, our, our episodes were two to $3 million each budgetarily versus something like stranger things where the it's $30 million right. an episode. Um, I think once you start getting up into those price ranges, it becomes a much more traditional Hollywood structure. And the director is the one ultimately sort of calling the shots, unless you have the sort of superstar showrunners like Vince Gilligan or the Duffer brothers or someone like that. I think they guys like that are capable of wearing both hats. Um, but, but I think TV, you can still be in charge as a writer. Um, up to a certain budgetary point. And once you go past that, uh, that area, everyone starts getting really nervous and they really want that sort of experienced feature director who's had that, those sort of $100 million successes under their belt. They want that guy calling the shots and sort of leading the charge a little bit. So the TV industry is in such weird growing pains right now of trying to figure out like, like what does a TV show look like now? Is it Stranger Things, which has a $300 million budget, or is it dope sick or the dropout? Uh, I mean, right. because it's the same format. The, technically, they're both shows that air on TV, but but from a production standpoint, they couldn't be more different. And so I think that's not a great answer to your question, but I think it really kind of varies. Right. How did you um, first get involved with Moon Knight? Uh, I, I was a Marvel fan going way back. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up on military bases. My dad was in the Air Force. Um, and I learned a lot of the storytelling tricks that I learned were from, it was reading Stephen King and, and reading Marvel comics. And so, uh, so I've been trying to get in the Marvel camp for a good 10 years, I'd say. Um, and, and it, it, it just sort of never worked out. We had never found the right project. And when I heard that they were developing shows, um, I was coming off Exorcist and Umbrella Academy and I was like, this is perfect. I finally have actual relevant experience. Um, and so I was really, really eager to get in there. And they gave me a list of the sort of, here's a bunch of characters that we're thinking about developing shows for. And one of them was Moon Knight. And that was the one I immediately gravitated towards because, because my background is in horror as a writer. It's where I got my start. And, it, you know, my, my resume is a little heavy on the horror side. I was like, this at least sets me up for, I have a much better shot at getting a, a show that is sort of nestled in the horror corners of the MCU mm -hmm. and involves werewolves and monsters and mummies and zombies and whatever else you want. Um, then I do a show that's much more grounded and, and, and character based like Hawkeye or like Miss Marvel or those other existing shows. I just knew I would be more comfortable in, in the Moon Knight space. Um, but it was a very long sort of protracted. It took several months of, of working out a take and, and figuring out what Marvel was creatively excited by and coming up with a pitch that everyone loved. Um, it definitely was not, you know, uh, a, a single meeting and congratulations, you're hired. It, it took probably four months from start to finish to, before I knew like, oh, I've, I've actually got this job. You kind of have that bigger perspective on Marvel. It, it does seem like a lot of Marvel is like, like if you look at a movie like Venom, it's Marvel plus the horror genre, or you look at Guardians, it's more with moral Marvel within like sci-fi. Is that, is that kind of why they work so well because they're already based in genre? I think so. I, I think part of it is, is that Kevin Feige is very um, hyper aware of, of not repeating past successes. Um, and and I, I think especially his experience coming up through some of the X-Men movies and Spider-Man movies and things like that, like he saw what worked and he saw what didn't work. And one of the things that keeps um, a comic book universe from, from 
feeling stagnant is to always be sort of surprising the audience and pushing those boundaries and, and telling stories that you haven't told before. Um, so that was the big thing coming in. It wasn't necessarily how do we do Moon Knight as a superhero show because they have that formula pretty well down. It would have been really easy to kind of crap out a very sort of generic um, the guy gets superpowers. You can, you can read how on Wikipedia and then he fights some bad guys and saves some MacGuffin. Um, and they were never really interested in that. It was always, what can we do here that we haven't seen before in the Marvel universe? And for Kevin Feige, those two elements were the Egyptology of Moon Knight, um, the, the way his powers were sort of tied into the gods of ancient Egypt and, and, and the mental health struggles, the, the fact that Moon Knight's greatest enemy um, isn't necessarily Bushman or stained glass Scarlet or anyone like that. His greatest enemy has always been his own mind. That's his own greatest weakness and limitation. And so, and they hadn't really done anything in the MCU that really tackled mental health in any real thing. So those were the two areas that he was sort of creatively excited by and wanted to make a show about. And, and it was sort of my job and, and my team of writers to, to figure out how to structure a traditional Marvel show while still hitting those benchmarks that Kevin was looking for. Is there any talk about audience? Because if you're saying all that, it, it does sound adult. Where a lot of, I mean, it's hard to say where Disney Plus is with some of these things, but the type yeah. of show, what you just said, Oscar Isaac, Ethan Hawke, you know, these are adult actors, adults, you know, very adult types of storyline. Um, do you talk about audience at all? Yeah, it was a big question in our writer's room. It was always that question of how far can we go? Like, can we have people getting killed on screen? Can we have our hero killing people on screen? Because that's something that, you know, you see quite a bit in the DCEU. Um, and, and in Marvel, a lot of the times the heroes don't kill. And that was a pretty important component of Mark Spector's backstory. And um, Marvel was really great about protecting us. And they were just like, look, um, all of our stuff hits the same sort of hard PG-13 cap. None of our stuff really goes ventures into the R-rated territory as of yet. Right. Um, but they were like, if you stay within those parameters, we can protect you, um, especially in terms of in terms of telling an adult story, making this emotionally complex, having a story that can go to some dark places involving trauma and child abuse and things like that. Um, Kevin was was always a cheerleader for all of that. He was always pushing us to be more honest and, and go to the dark places if that's where the story took us. It was, it was, it was never, a, there, I don't think we ever had one conversation about like, ooh, I don't know if this is appropriate for Disney Plus or not. It was just more, Kevin just kind of knows his audience in the MCU and he knows what they can and can't take. Um, and, and he was like, if you go too far, I'll pull you back. You don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of just relied on him as our sort of bumper rails uh, to sort of keep us on track. Was there anything particularly difficult with the transition, like like were the reflection conversations? Was that from the comic, or was that something you guys made up? Anything like that that you guys brought that was new? Um, I'm sure I'm sure that's happened in the comics before. Um, it, it was something I came up for my pitch because one of the first sequences I ever, you know, I, the way I sort of formulate any story is I. I I get scenes, I get moments, I get visuals in my head that I'm really creative, ex creatively excited about where I'm like, oh, there's something there. I don't know any of the shape around this. I don't know why the person is in this bathroom, but I know there's a person being chased by a monster and he's locked in a bathroom and the monster's breaking through the door and he's about to die. And suddenly his reflection turns to him and says, I can save you, but you have to give me the body. Like I, that came to me out of nowhere, probably thanks to 
a long night of marijuana or something. Um, I, 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 I got that idea during my sort of brainstorming phase. And I was like, that's a scene. That's, that is the fir- the end of the first episode. Um, and then I sort of worked forward and backwards to sort of fill in the blanks of, well, how did this guy get in is, where is this, this bathroom? It's in a museum. Why is it in a museum? It's because he works in a museum. Oh, this is his job. I, I, I sort of filled in the gaps because I had three or four of these sort of very strong, just sort of gut instinct scenes where I was like, this is part of the show. I don't know how it fits, but I know this is meant to be in the show. Um, so I always sort of develop backwards that way, which is sometimes really helpful. And sometimes um, you, you go down a lot of creative dead ends and write yourself into a corner, but it's kind of the only way I know how to work. I don't know. <laughs> Just to kind of go in the weeds, like logistically, what is that like? Are you writing on note cards, like in your phone? How do you kind of do that? Everything? I, I have multiple. Yeah, my my desk is is constantly covered with just like scribbled pages. Um, I, I probably have 200 sheets of paper just surrounding me at all times, plus note things on my phone and, and, I, and five or six scripts that are always open in my computer. So if I have an idea, I go and type it up. And I, I usually do my brainstorming late at night. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I come back to it and I go through, and I'm like, that's terrible, terrible, terrible. Oh, there's actually something here. Like that's actually a decent idea. And it's, it's one of those processes where you write down 10 ideas a day and, and throw away nine of them the next day. But mm-hmm. that one that sticks around, you're like, I, I, I know that this idea, this line of dialogue or this visual, this moment belongs in the story somewhere. I just don't know where. And so I, I tend to have, you know, I've always got a, a handful of spec scripts that are in development or TV pilots or things like that. Um, that are always just sort of a collection of, of weird, random ideas. I'm looking for that connective thread. I'm looking for the, the story or the character arc that ties it all together. And once I have it, then things snap into place very fast. So, mm-hmm. so my, like my spec script that I wrote um, that I want to direct, um, I, I think I thought about it for two and a half years mm-hmm. um, where I just had these different ideas. And I was like, I knew these four or five scenes were part of it. I knew this was how it ended. I just didn't know who the villain was. I didn't know what the heroes wanted. Um, but then once those things start clicking into place, um, I think I, I thought about the script for, for two years and then I wrote it in like eight days. Like it just, mm-hmm. it just poured out of me. So, so part of it is just letting it kind of cook in the oven until it's ready to come out, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I feel like if there's not a, a ticking clock, if there's not a deadline on, oh, this needs to be handed in in mm-hmm. eight weeks or 12 weeks, or this needs to be on the air in the fall. Um, I tend to just let stuff cook and simmer in the back burner and, and then you know, kind of let the universe tell me which one is the next one up. I'm like, oh, I've got a feeling it's this one. Or, or mm-hmm. you know what, these two things just click together. Now I'm feeling much better about this project. Because I, I think you just kind of have to trust your gut a little bit and, and chase the stuff that you, you're creatively excited by. Hmm. Were you writing Moon Knight, just the, like the pilot? Were you writing the whole six episodes at once when you were coming up with ideas? Um, well, initially, uh, for the initial pitch, I, I came up with, here's what I think the structure of the show is. Right. Um, and... The first episode was actually pretty close to the first episode you got. Like it, it, it had the same sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark truck chase down the mountainside. It had, 
you know, the guy chaining himself to the bed and, and getting trapped by the monster. Um, everything in episodes two through six from my pitch basically got thrown out. Um, because once you hire the writer's room and you actually start going through, and also in the case of Marvel, um, you know, when you're pitching, you're pitching in a vacuum. You don't know, but they've got 20 other things in development between their different shows and movies and, and spinoffs and everything else. Mm -hmm. So once you actually get in the weeds and start pitching it out, you start realizing, oh, this villain doesn't work because we're going to be coming on the heels of a different project that has a similar villain. Or, right. oh, they actually just had a, a, a finale set in a, in a location like this. So we need to totally find a new location. So working at a plate for for such a gigantic project as, as like a marvel show you just have to be incredibly flexible and realize that like this is a collaborative environment that that it's not one person sort of walking in and being like you know the master has arrived with a story to tell everyone get out of my way and help me bring this to life it's much more you know a collective of of 20 or 30 really smart people all trying to make something cool that the fans are going to enjoy. So you have to sort of really give yourself over to that collaborative process. But, but I, I think timeline wise, there were probably four months of pitching. And then once we were, once we, once I was hired, we had a writer's room that ran for 24 weeks mm -hmm. and we did the first two versions of the show. Um, and then after that, the writers were dismissed and I continued writing by myself for another six, eight months, something like that. Hmm. Um, but yeah, but it was writing all six episodes. I, I think, I think altogether, I probably wrote in a in a, a year and a half period. I probably had between twelve hundred and fifteen hundred pages of material because <laughs> we did six versions of the show, and each version is three hundred and sixty pages long. So uh, wow, it was intense. Uh, it's it's a lot of pages. How do you mentally? Because it, it feels like by version three, you're like, okay, I'm pretty spent with ideas. How do you get to the next version when you're, is it just the writer's room together? Or how do you push on, I guess, mentally? Not well in my case, because it was also coincided with the beginning of the pandemic. So it was like the entire world shut down and everyone's kind of sitting around saying, who's going to die next? Who's going to get sick next? And And meanwhile, I was kind of writing 50 hours a week for, about mental illness too. <laughs> about mental illness for about eight months in a row without a day off. So it was a very sort of taxing, um, exhausting time. Um, the nice thing is that every time the every time the the show changed, it would change in a pretty significant way. It, it was I think if it had been a year of minor tweaks, mm. that's when you really experience the sort of creative burnout where you're just sort of putting a different coat of paint on the same jalopy. And I think, I think it was really the sort of changes where we would, you know, we would throw out four or five episodes at a time. We would replace the main villain, the main MacGuffin, the main love interest. Um, you would have these big sort of sweeping changes that sort of give you the opportunity to go back and sort of almost write these episodes from scratch again. So it helped in the sense that it felt like it didn't feel like I was rewriting the same show yeah. six times in a row. It felt like I wrote six different shows and the last one was the one we ultimately wound up making. Um, and there was obviously similarities in there, but it's not um, the, the, it wasn't creative burnout so much as, as more just physical exhaustion by the end of it. Um, it, it, it does take a toll just, you know, waking up at 7am and writing till midnight and, and doing that seven days a week. Um, you know, you don't get to 
go to movies and you don't get to walk your dogs or see your friends um, or watch TV shows. Like uh, it's very hard work. Um, but, but look, it's, that is sort of the price you pay for, for having a stage this big. The nice thing is that most of the time as a writer, you're writing in that vacuum and you're like, I don't know if this is ever getting made. If it gets made, I don't know if anyone's going to care. Um, and you don't have that question with Marvel. You know that whether you, you win or lose, you're going to have millions of eyes on this. So you better right. get it right. So, so that sort of enthusiasm slash terror of knowing that if you screw up, you're going to be screwing up on a very sort of big public stage. Um, I think that kind of lights the fire to keep you going in those dark nights. <laughs> we'll just do a, a couple more. If you were to maybe like um, think of, you know, who you were when you're writing The Exorcist or before The Exorcist, were there any false beliefs you had as a screenwriter or any bad advice you got early on in your career? Oh, God, the, the best the best thing you can do as, as a writer is be involved with something that's actually getting made and be involved in the making of that, which um, Exorcist, I got thrown into the deep end because before that I had, I had, you know, as as a feature writer, mm-hmm you write a draft, you're very collaboratively involved, and then you hand it off and you never hear from anybody again. And like, you know, two months later, the movie comes out and maybe your name is in the credits somewhere. Um, but, but you don't kind of get to see how the sausage is made and you don't get to see why, you know, it's obviously very different than the thing you wrote, but you don't know why those creative choices were made. Mm-hmm. So as, as you're actually making sort of a weekly TV show and you have that pressure, um, you start to realize that a lot of those things that are incredible crutches when you're writing, like, oh, you see a montage all throughout the city and, and dozens of people interacting and giant crowd scenes and things like that. Um, that as a writer, you, you tap, 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 and you're done. And, and then as a, you, you, once you're actually like working with a line producer and saying, oh, doing a montage is the hardest thing ever because it involves, you know, those 50 different shots involve 50 different setups and that involves three days of work. And we only have, um, we only have eight days to shoot this thing. So that better be a really important montage if you want to spend three days on it. So stuff like that, you start to realize the crutches that you sort of rely on, especially as a feature writer of saying, it's not my problem. Someone else can figure it out. Um, it becomes your problem in a hurry. Also just seeing your dialogue spoken aloud, watching actors try to interpret that, seeing what they need on the page to get them where they are. Um, I, I always, you know, writing is always that balance between something that looks, that reads well on the page versus something that's going to read well when spoken aloud. And those two things aren't always the same. Um, sometimes what reads really well on the page sounds flowery or false when it's said out loud. And sometimes what feels very natural on screen looks really unprofessional on the page um, when you try to get that naturalistic vibe. So, so finding that balance where, where your writing sort of lives in between those two areas um, and it reads real enough that an actor can bring something to it and, and ground it, but it reads well enough that it's not going to get noted to death and die in the development stage is probably the biggest adjustment that I've made as a writer after kind of being part of a TV show. And I think if, if you look at where my career was before The Exorcist and, and where it's gone afterwards, I sort of credit that show as for, for everything good that has happened since then, because I think it made me such a better writer in such a small amount of time. 
If we talk a little more about your spec script, and I see you've got credits for Wiley Cody and Mortal Kombat 2 coming out. You, you're clearly rising in the ranks. You're very successful. You've got all these, these jobs coming out. Is it just wanting to direct that makes you want to write a spec script? Or like, what might you tell someone who's kind of like got plenty of work, but they still got this story they want to tell? I mean, the, the joy of writing is, is that if you have that story, you can put it on paper and, and you can share it with other people. I mean, that's, I think that's why all of us get into this business is, is because we were inspired and we were touched by, by movies and shows that, that made us feel something. And we want to pass that along. We want to give audiences that same appearance. I, I, I'm not a big fan of telling people, write what you know, because I think that winds up with a lot of navel gazing scripts. Mm. Um, I certainly went through my share of them when I was 18 years old of, yeah, no, here's a script about the artistic, lonely introvert and, and the quirky girl of his dreams who's going to make him, you know, all those bad 500 days of summer bullshit. Um, but but that, that you tend to write when you're like 18 years old and you don't have anything, you don't have any life experience to draw. I'm not saying 500 days of summer is bullshit. It's a very good script, but I'm saying, when, when I set out to write something like five to 100 days of summer when I'm 18, it was fucking terrible. Um, and so, but I do think you, you have to tell people, write what you love, write what you're passionate about, write what no one else is writing that only you can bring to the table. Because I think people who chase trends can, can get a minor foothold in the industry and can kind of hang on for a little while. But if you don't have your own ideas, if you don't have your own things that you're passionate about, and if you don't have that confidence of being able to walk into a room and say, I am the single best person for this job, you have to hire me because there's no one else in the world who can tell this story as well as I can. You're never going to make it in this town. This, this job is, is equal parts passion and confidence in a lot of ways. And it took me a good 10 years of my career to figure that out. Um, but but that's the best. That's the advice I wish I could give to myself if I was going back and starting over again, which is stop chasing what is successful right now at the box office and start chasing the stuff that you are only, that you can only dream of sort of bringing to the table. So for me, my spec script is it's, you know, it's, it's aliens meets back to the future. It's a love letter to everything I grew up on. And it's the sort of movie that I feel like is not being made anymore at which I would really love to bring back. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question or not, but yeah, write what you love. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.